Papermen meet such interesting people. Welcome to the Media Project, an inside look at the media coverage of current events. I'm not Rex Smith. I'm Mike Spain, the former associate editor of the Times Union in Albany, filling in as host for this week. Joining us today is a skeleton crew, including (laughs) (laughs) investigative journalist and UAlbany professor Rosemary Armeo and WAMC's news director Ian Pickus. Thanks for being with us. Glad to bring our A-game to the B-team. <laughs> hey, I resent that. <laughs> Half of a B-team. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot to talk about, but one of the big things this week as the defendants in the Georgia case involving Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election are being arraigned and booked and their photos are being taken, and there'll be a trial date set at one point. Should that trial and should the other three trials that former President Donald Trump is facing in the coming months or years, depending on how his lawyers succeed in getting trial dates set, should those trials be broadcast? Now, currently, federal courts have rules against any cameras in the courtroom, but many are arguing there should be exceptions to that to let the public see it. What do you think, Ian, as a news director? Well, I was thinking about the absurdity of the coverage of the last time Trump was in court. Listening on our special coverage here on WAMC, you had a reporter in the courthouse for NPR texting updates to co-workers outside of the courtroom who are then relaying information to people listening. And that is just very antiquated, it seems to me. We are a visual culture. We know that most likely most Americans will not read extensive coverage of the trial. They will believe what they see, perhaps. So, yeah, I think we're past the time of needing cameras in the courtroom, especially for such a sensitive topic like this, where it will serve as a political Rorschach test for a lot of people. We're past the point of, you know, sort of letting the truth will out through goodwill. I just don't think that happens anymore. Well, Rosemary, many have argued that if cameras are allowed in a courtroom where Donald Trump is on trial, he'll be using theatrics, as lawyers will be using theatrics to not only convince the jury, but convince the American public that he's innocent and and use that forum to, again, continue disseminating misinformation. What do you think of that argument? Yeah, I think it has validity. I'm torn on this because as a matter of principle, I think cameras belong in every courtroom. That includes the Supreme Court. I can't think of a trial more important to the country, to the world, than Donald Trump's variety of trials, actually. (laughs) It's not just this one. Um, So, yeah, on principle, I think it would be there. And then I remember, you know, another trial, also called the trial of the century, O.J. Simpson, where his lawyers and he played great theatrics. It held the country in thrall. It was better than any court TV that Americans love and Perry Mason and Law and Order. We want to see it. Why are we not seeing what's there? So again, that argues for putting people in. But what happened with O.J. Simpson was a judge who didn't have the trial in his control. He did not keep things under wraps. He allowed grandstanding. And the judge in Atlanta is very inexperienced. So I think the camera should belong there, but at the same time, I'm really happy they're not going to be there. I think you're incorrect. I think in Georgia, they they do 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 allow cameras in the court in the state of Georgia. But the other case in New York City involving the allegation of paying hush money to a porn star, that could be public. That's up to the the judge. Up to the judge in New York York State Court. Mm But the other two, the federal court cases involving documents in federal cases, involving documents in Florida and involving the insurrection 
and efforts to overthrow the election on January 6th in Washington, D.C., those will not, unless something dramatically changes, those will not be able to be broadcast to the public. See, that's one I'd really like to the judge in Washington on the uh, January 6th trial is very strong. She has control. She conducts a, a really good trial. The guy in Atlanta, we don't know about him. Yeah, we don't know about him. And the judge in Florida also is a fairly new oh, yeah. judge. And, and she's his, pro-Trump so far. And she's, she's already demonstrated, well, arguably, she's in pretrial case motions, she's demonstrated, uh, yeah. you know. Jack she, Smith really cut her down in the latest uh, response to her right. to her ruling. So it does, it does, it is cause for concern because cameras in the courtroom does, it could turn into a circus. Would that be good? It would, bad. Now, from a news director's <laughs> point of view, it would give you good audio. Well, oh, we yeah. would love to have that. And I guess my question <laughs> is, does it matter if a performance is being put on? Ultimately, 12 people have to decide these cases. And Trump may be playing, you know, for the aftermath, but the aftermath might not be in his control. Right. But there's been a lot of talk about what would happen if Trump were convicted and he still runs for president and wins. Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. So he really has two audiences. He has the audience of the 12 jurors. All he has to do is convince one of them, and he uh, he gets off. And he also has, even if he is convicted, the audience of the general public because he's going to be out on the campaign trail, and he wants to use whatever he says during the courtroom. Now, I, I imagine a case, a situation like the famous scene in A Few Good Men where Jack Nicholson is on the stand and Tom Cruise is the prosecutor and and he finally breaks him down and he... he Your GD right, I ordered it. Right, that's exactly right. You can't handle the truth. Is there a possibility that a, a good prosecutor could have that kind of back and forth with Donald Trump and wouldn't that make great theater? Well, it certainly would, but wow, if you're a defense attorney and you put Donald Trump on the stand... You need to have your law license reviewed. <laughs> You're looking at perjury 50-50. Oh, yeah. So it's unlikely that Donald Trump would even appear on the witness stand when he does go to trial in these four cases. I mean, that seems to be the I, consensus. I think I would be shocked if it happened. I think also, I mean, it has to be said, cameras are not. The, whatever happens in these rooms is going to be spun, is going to be misrepresented by Trump and his allies. We're past the point of getting a, a clear read on what happened in a trial from uh, from him. So really, it doesn't matter. I mean, what, what goes on in the courtroom may not even matter that much to people who've already made their mind up that he's being framed and this is a witch hunt or people who've already made their mind up that he's completely guilty and he should be thrown in prison. Well, we have heard him say many times, don't believe what you see. Believe what I tell, tell you. you. <laughs> right. He, I, I think that it won't change minds, but it would still be that trial will be of immense interest. Trials of much lesser personalities than Trump are fascinating. They're dramatic. In Akron, Ohio, where I worked, oldsters, uh, retirees, would come into court and sit in the back and just watch. It was like theater. And this is a man who is a reality TV star. It's going to be so interesting. There's no question about that. What isn't so interesting, and you brought this up, Ian, is the coverage of all the pretrial motions and hearings and fighting over briefs. And how do we cover 
that. How much is too much? I read every word of it. I think you two probably do as well. But the average reader, do we really care about the judges ask both sides to submit briefs on blah, 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 blah? Well, we were remarking on some sound in the newsroom here that was featured on NPR after the latest court appearance. And it was kind of what we call man on the street sound. Even among his supporters, they cannot keep track of how many cases Trump is facing. And they're not specifying the difference in all the cases. I think in at least a certain percentage of the public's mind, this is kind of all wrapped into one ongoing narrative that really dates back to the Mueller report, and it's just a big ball of persecution. Right. It's just the one side's intention to tie up Donald Trump and to persecute him so he can't succeed in his next effort to run for president. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to combat that? Is there a way the media can differentiate one case or another or to show what's really at stake or to even address the issue of whether this is rightful prosecution or persecution? Should the media, can the media do anything about that? Haven't they? (laughs) (laughs) They've tried. (laughs) I mean, the challenge is to turn it all into a soundbite. It's the documents case in Florida. It's the Georgia state election law case. It's the federal case about the uh, 2020 election. It's the porn star case in New York City. That's easy to label. (laughs) But people do get confused. Even I have to confess that sometimes you have to, which case is this again? You know, when you you look at it, especially when you're talking about the two federal cases and the prosecutor, special prosecutor Jack Smith. You made a reference, Ian, to audio that came in and people on the street. You know, as a news director, you send your reporters out to cover events and sometimes they're tragedies, sometimes it involves people on the street, as you describe them, people who are not used to being interviewed, people who are not public officials outside courtrooms making sound bites for videos that are going to be used in social media. It's just People who are vulnerable, people who've just had a tragedy, witnessed a shooting, had a fire at the house, uh, saw a terrible thing happen. And you go and interview them. You send your reporters out to interview them. How do you coach the reporters so that they respect that vulnerability? And how do you deal with it when you want to protect somebody who might be fearing legitimately or illegitimately uh, retribution if they go on the air and say something? It's really tough. And I think we have made a distinction between knowing when we're talking to someone who's in the game and somebody who's not in the game. You know, we have a lot of stories like most news outlets do that are with public officials and politicians and police officers and and people who are in their job required to speak to reporters and they have a, a practiced air about doing that. And then there's civilians, there's everybody else. And as you say, bad things happen and sometimes you've got to knock on a door where a mom just uh, buried a kid and stick a microphone in their face. And yes, you do want to be protective of them, especially in a, in a tragic situation. I think a lot of times what we do is not lead with the recording equipment and try to have a human conversation. And sometimes that will take 20, 30 minutes before there's ever the idea that would you like to speak to us for the news story we're doing on this. And a lot of times that will work to kind of show that you're there, it's part of your job, you have good intentions, and you're not trying to put people on blast. And unfortunately, you know, there's been a a war on reporters in this country in the last decade, and it's 
people do not trust all the time when a reporter is is knocking on their door or coming up to them. And I think there should be a very high bar for using any of that anonymously. So we throw out a lot of sound we get here because we can't substantiate it or the person will only give us a first name or that kind of thing, and we will not use it. Now, Rosemary, you, you've been a reporter a long time and an editor, and you now instruct future journalists mm-hmm. as a professor at, at the University at Albany. How do you advise yeah. the students about using information and not attributing to a, a named source. Anonymous sources? Yeah. Well, and not anonymous mm. sources within government, but let's say you're interviewing somebody about a situation in a neighborhood that might be dangerous right. and they're afraid to have their name. Okay. The first uh, the first used. thing as I say is don't assume that you have to be anonymous. People are afraid, but they also want to talk. And those are the stories that we need to go after. If you just want to do nice, easy, feel-good stories, dog stories, you know, <laughs> pet trick stories, then it's no, that's not reporting in my book. My reporting is talking to the father whose daughter was just found in a ditch in Florida, killed during spring break when she was supposed to be having fun. It is talking to the people living in a neighborhood in Suffolk, Virginia, that's been taken over by drug dealers, are afraid to walk out of it. Those are the people I want to talk to. They are the ones who have stories that belong in our newspapers and magazines and online. And that means you have to get them to talk to. It takes time. And I was print, Ian, so I have more time than your uh, your reporters do. I would go and talk to them without a cameraman, interviewed another, a woman who killed her husband, shot him in the back, and she was not indicted. And I wanted to know why. That's almost unheard of. And in every one of those cases, I got people to talk to me because I went and said, we have to do a story about this. You can't stop that. But it doesn't have to be about your loved person as a victim. Tell me what your daughter was like. Tell me what it's like to have to send your son out here every day. He has to go to school. That's where the school is. He has to walk past these drugs. Tell me what that's like. I can't promise you that anything will change after this story, but I know that saying silent won't do anything, so please talk to me. And they do. People do tell you stuff. Yeah, I remember vividly after uh, after 9-11, the afternoon of September 11th, 2001, uh, gathering uh, the reporters at the Albany Times Union into a conference room, and our editor, Rex Smith, your host who isn't here today, for whom I'm filling in, gave a talk. He said, you're going to be knocking on doors. You're going to be calling up and interviewing friends and relatives of the victims, and there were so many from the capital region that were affected by 9-11, and many families lost family members, many residents died in the Twin Towers collapse. And he he said exactly what you said, Rosemary, about tell me about the person that you lost. Let me tell the community about the person that was the victim here. And in the process, people opened up. At first, they would be very hesitant, but they wanted to talk about that. And I don't think it was exploitive, but it's risking exploiting somebody when they've had a tragedy and you want to get their quotes into the paper or you want to get their quotes on the air. Where is that fine line? And when would you allow someone, if there was some risk or perceived risk uh, on their part, if they were talking about, let's say they live in a dangerous neighborhood and there's been shootings in the neighborhood and they've witnessed some shootings and they want to talk to you about that, but they don't want their name on the air or their last name on the air or they want to use a pseudonym. How do you handle that, Ian? It's really a case-by-case basis. I can only think of maybe three or four times in my time that we've cleared that bar to protect somebody in that manner. But 
A couple more recent examples come to mind just, you know, with what we've been talking about. There was a terrible story in our neck of the woods where a bunch of young people turned into a driveway. Uh, it was the wrong yes. driveway mm -hmm. and one was shot fatally. And we ended up covering the community vigil and, and funeral service. And that was done from afar. It was a very painful thing, but it was clearly a national story. And we had to cover it right in our mm -hmm. backyard. And the way that, that we had two reporters there, the way that we approached it is, you know, some people yelled at them. Some people said, you shouldn't be here since you're exploiting this. And others recognized that this was a story um, and we were trying to do justice to the situation and the memory of the person by showing up just like they were. And with that approach, you know, giving them some space and not meeting them at the door as they're walking in to look at a casket, many of them did end up talking with our reporters. A second example is is very current, and that is the migrant story in upstate yes. New York. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, it's a really point. good yeah. example. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have been fortunate. We have a reporter who's fluent in Spanish who was able to meet some of the migrants who are staying in the capital region. Uh, the Doc Go, the now embattled uh, contractor for New York City that's been handling the service uh, for the migrants who have been sent upstate, said, no one can talk to you. Uh, migrants can't talk to you. They're not allowed. And when I found that out, I simply said to the reporters, let's not listen to that. That is not up to them. Hang out and let's see who comes out and let's see who we can talk to. And that is a person, the one we ended up featuring the most, who walked 3,000 miles to get a, a different life, um, facing almost certain death at every turn. They're not afraid of talking to us. They want us to know what they've been through. <laughs> and .gov, we should note, is now under investigation by the Attorney General for suppressing the rights of, of migrants and not being told not to talk to anybody is one of the rights that they're looking at so yeah that's important you you give voice to people I think a lot of the resistance is on young reporters it's scary to talk to someone who has just faced a massive mm -hmm. tragedy you do feel like you're intruding and look what we're taught from the time we're kids don't ask that. that's an embarrassing question that's a rude question and that's exactly what reporters have to do um, so again I think it's really important to say they have a story to tell and we need to tell it that's our job the DART Center, which is a nonprofit organization, does great work out of Columbia University on victims, getting them to talk. They have advice on this, and their reporters and other trainers have done, like, the massacre in Rwanda where neighbor was killing neighbor. So imagine going in after that, a million people killed, like, in, you know, four months. And there were rules like, don't ask a lot of questions. You just say, tell me your story. Tell me what happened. And let them tell it at their own pace and their own speed. And in that case, they did not use some names because they're still living with the very people who had killed their family. And anonymity was given because there were many people talking. I would not give anonymity if it was one person talking about one crime. But if you're talking about a whole village that has been wiped out and you've talked to a lot of people, I would not require names. Well, let's switch gears here. For the oh. first time, cable and broadcast are making up less than half of TV viewing. And what that means is basically people are not flipping on the TV and watching what's currently being broadcast either on cable or over the air. They're streaming. They're using YouTube to watch a newscast or watch some kind of news event or sports event. You know, a lot of people during the recent FIFA Women's World Cup 
weren't up at 3 o'clock in the morning. They watched it at 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning when it was more convenient because it was happening across the globe in New Zealand and Australia. So that's a reality. Now people are, are just shifting. I mean, it, it, the majority of people are shifting. What will that mean? What will that mean for the way that journalists cover news now, knowing that people may listen to it currently, they may listen to it an hour from now, they may listen to it next week? including this program, which is available on podcast. <laughs> and it's a very popular podcast. <laughs> well, I think there may be two exceptions to our on-demand culture, and I would say sports is the clear number one. Good Watching point. sports on tape is just not the same. <laughs> and I think news is probably the second. Now, sure, we have to cater to an on-demand audience now, and there's absolutely no reason that to listen to the media project, you need to be there at the broadcast time in our current landscape. But when there's breaking news, I think a lot of us still find ourselves making sure we're tuned in as it's happening. And a lot of times that means on TV, uh, in, you know, in, the, in the cable uh, CNN, MSNBC, Fox realm for live breaking events. I found myself doing it this week with the Russian aircraft uh, crash, trying to find out information about Prigozhin. So I think news and sports will be the last exceptions to this. And all the entertainment will, the idea of tuning in on Thursday night to catch Seinfeld or else you missed it. <laughs> That's over. <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, yeah, in general, because of the entertainment part, I love the on-demand culture, but we have really put ourselves in news and sports a little bit out of business. People are not tuning in to a whole lot of news. Yes, breaking news, you know, of course, uh, the Twin Towers go down and you've got an audience for days, but day-to-day -day news, news avoidance has become a real problem. We've talked about it a little bit on this show. People are simply not listening. Is it fatigue? Is it... Um, um, depression, because the news is generally pretty bad these days. And is it busyness? Is it a sense of helplessness? I can't do anything about it. The world is melting. Why, what, what good does it do me to listen to one more story about the ice flows, you know, all coming off of uh, Antarctica? <laughs> but, uh, but at any rate, the on-demand culture makes that a lot easier to do when news was on at 6 and 11 you had to watch it because you know it was the only time you could get it. Now you don't have to watch it at six and eleven, and in fact, you don't have to watch it at all. And increasingly, the statistics show that's what's happening. Yeah. Except the other side of that coin, and it's something we hear all the time: is well, how come you didn't cover this? Right. And oh, a lot I of hate times, that, don't you? Were you listening? <laughs> yeah. If, did you miss the five hours we did on that this yeah. week? <laughs> I wasn't listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, one story that definitely was compelling and that people were tuning in or, or going online to find out about real time was the tropical storm that battered Hawaii. And there was another one a week later in California, tropical storm Hillary, and they got lots of round-the-clock coverage. And even before, even before the hurricane's full impact and the storm and the fires that were caused in Hawaii by a, a nearby hurricane blowing by, there was blame going on to the White House for not reacting soon enough, or the president was criticized for going too soon or acting too yeah. soon or making statements too soon. What should the president do when there's a national disaster like we saw in Hawaii and like we've witnessed more recently in California? What is the right thing for a, a, for a leader who has the bully pulpit to lead the nation? What should they do? Should they stay away from the tragedy? Should they go physically? What do you think is best, Rosemary? <laughs> 
Yeah, what they should do is different than what they have to do in order <laughs> to stay politically, uh, you know, active. Trump was horrible with Puerto Rico, remember, and went there and made he made an appearance because his advisors, I'm sure, told him you had to. You can't pull a George Bush with Katrina. He did not go to to Louisiana, so he goes to Puerto Rico. He does not have a common touch, let's say, and he's tossing paper towels at him. That is a lasting image. Did him no good. Did the Puerto Ricans no good. When a president travels someplace, it comes with an, an army of support staff and, and all of the personnel and security measures in the whole city have to bend to that to those needs, which detracts from taking care of people who really need it. The president should stay in Washington and stay at a command post. We have kind of sophisticated electronics right now. Does he really have to be there himself? Send his FEMA director there. Send aid and support. Make sure it's all lined up so money goes there. That's what he should, should do but he cannot and we saw that with Biden who said no comment when a Fox reporter Fox News reporter asked him about Hawaii he was busy and he had done everything correctly no one is criticizing the, the national response to to Hawaii but instead he got criticized because he said no comment this somehow shows that he didn't care it's it was, a little silly, isn't it? Yeah, it's become silly. Do you have anything to add, Ian? Well, it just uh, strikes me that in the re first Republican presidential debate, uh, which happened just before our show, Chris Christie uh, was criticized for hugging President Obama after Superstorm Sandy. So 10 right. years ago, when right. the president showed up in the hour of need for New Jersey, and they put their politics aside. At that point, it looked like Christie might be one of Obama's lead challengers. They embraced, they put their politics to the side, and they worked on the response. And Christie is still being uh, castigated yeah. for that. So That's I don't really, know. Yeah. I, it's tough. I mean, you want to you want to get the sense that the president cares. I would say. In New York State, we saw this a lot with Andrew Cuomo, who couldn't wait to get on the windbreaker when there was some sort of disaster. <laughs> but, you know, he had a he had a good approach uh, when things were going wrong uh, with natural disasters in New York, which yeah. is to just show that you care about it. Uh, and yeah, Obama. Um, Obama Biden. had it licked. Come on, he 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 would go there and hug people. Tears would stream down his face, and he would sing, you know, a hymn. But I agree with you. That's more performance than operationalizing FEMA to actually do the response. Right. Both. Right. I think the answer is both have to happen. The president has a role in leading the nation in paying homage and and showing empathy to the victims of a of a disaster. And at the same time, he has to mobilize. FEMA and any other federal agency that can go in there and help. I think that it doesn't get reported that way, as we well know. Well, finally, one little thing. National Radio Day. It, on August 20th, just this past week, it was National Radio Day. It was a day to celebrate the founding of radio. And as we look at this uh, phenomenon of radio that you are listening to in some form or another right now. About 8 in 10 Americans age 12 or older do listen to radio during the week. How does that make you uh, respond <laughs> as a news director of a radio <laughs> operation, Ian? It makes me say thank you. And <laughs> I do think, you know, podcasts are a boom. Satellite radio has come. But I think people like the comfort of knowing that when they turn it on, it will be there. And that's a number one service that we can offer. And radio uh, has not been killed by TV or the Internet or streaming. It's still here. And I think it's still going to be here. Uh, the question is, what form? 
Yeah. What about driverless cars? Could that kill it? Yes. Uh, and Alan Shartok <laughs> used to worry about that on yes. this very show. If I don't have to drive, I can watch TV while I'm in the car. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, nearly half of U.S. adults say that they sometimes or often get their news from radio. And with that, we want to thank you. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Rosemary and to Ian. And thanks to our producer, David Gustina. I'm Mike Spain. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on The Media Project. <laughs>